teaching for our kids in the back. This is truly uh, a plug as well for uh, an encouragement for you as a body as you can wait to serve here is by investing in these little ones on Sunday mornings. And so as they go back, Joseph's going to be taking them back to teach this morning. I want you to take just a moment to pray for them. That God will use this time to disciple them. And he teaches us as, as adults that even our, as, in our faith, we should approach him with the faith of a child. And so as they go back, they have what it takes in this faith of life to receive and understand what Jesus has done for them. And so I want to pray for them as they go. So join me if you will. God, we thank you today. We thank you this morning for the little ones that uh, that we are placed here as a body to disciple. God, to encourage their family as their parents disciple them. And God, I thank you this morning that they have a chance to go and to hear your word, to hear the goodness of what Jesus did for them. And God, as they go back to their innocence, God, we know that there is an underlying issue, and that is their sin. And God, their sin needed a Savior, and you provided the perfect one in Jesus, the only one that would do it. And to accomplish what Jesus accomplished. And so as they go back this morning, Father, I pray that you will speak to their little hearts this morning, that it will find the truth into their ears amidst the chaos of energy that they bring to the back. God, may they hear the good news of Jesus and may they see the plan that you will grow and, 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 and bring it to maturity, God, to the point of salvation in your Son. So God, we pray over them this morning and over our time as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to welcome you again to our gathering. If you are new here, my name is Chad. I'm one of the elders here at venue, and I get to get a chance from time to time to get to to, to, to teach during this time together. But let me remind you, let me give you some good news this morning. Here's this good news. God is a covenant-keeping God. We've heard that. We've seen it all throughout God's Word. God is a covenant-keeping God. If God says that something was so, then you can thank Him. His promises are true. He is faithful to his people. And so church, we have much to be thankful for this morning and each morning as we gather together as the body of Christ. Because you know what God says in Matthew, what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20. Jesus would tell his disciples a truth that resonates to our current context this morning when he says we're two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among you. We can think on that truth. For two or three gathered in my name, there am I among you. This morning, we stand in the presence of the holy audience of God. He is with us in this very moment. And so, I pray that we will always Always, always embrace the truth that our Creator, though holy and powerful and sovereign, has chosen to manifest His power and His presence by intimately spending time among His children. This gathering, as I said earlier, is not a memorial. We do not gather today to commemorate a memory of God. But we gather this morning in his very presence. I pray that the truth of that will sink into our minds. For two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. God is with us and among us today. Well, we're in the middle of a very providential word to us as a church, as we have been walking the last several weeks through the book of Nehemiah. And this morning will be no different. 
God has a very specific and I believe important and timely word for us as the body of Christ we would like together. But before we nestle into Nehemiah, I want to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 3 this morning. We're going to get to Nehemiah in just a moment. But I want to paint for you a backdrop this morning from Philippians 3 for the underlying truth I think that Nehemiah wants to communicate to us, a timeless truth that he would, he would communicate hundreds of years before Paul and he would end these words. You know, life is a constant pursuit of something and a test of our perseverance to obtain it. Let me say that again. Life is a constant pursuit of something and a test of our perseverance to obtain it. In our culture, what you're going to constantly see is that men and women are driven by a hunger and an appetite for the pursuit of purpose. And oftentimes, this pursuit is actually a journey to find happiness and to find lasting joy. You do what you do because you think in doing what you do, you're going to be satisfied. You're going to find true life. You're going to experience lasting joy. For some of you, this may be the motivator behind why you were here this morning. Because community brings you a glimpse of happiness and joy that you are so longing for. And so when you have trouble finding that, you find it among the people of God. You find that encouragement. But when community, even something like community, becomes the center of our motivation, what ends up happening to us in the pursuit of joy, apart from Christ as central, is that we can over time lose enthusiasm and lose motivation. You know, probably the worst enemy of enthusiasm is time. You know, human beings have a tendency to get tired of good things. You know, almost all of you can think of a time when you were fired up and enthusiastic about something, only see it eventually fade and excitement. You remember when you, get, you got a new car, maybe a new new car. At first, you were so motivated to keep it clean, washed, and vacuumed, to take care of it really well. You know, then over time, you know, they could film an episode of Porters in your backseat. You know, the fast food bags are there. It is, you just, over time, you lose that excitement enthusiasm. You, know, you go on vacation. The first morning, you are absolutely in awe of God's creation. As the sunset falls below the horizon, the first, the first morning as it rises, and the evening as it falls below the horizon across the ocean. But by the end of the week, you hardly even notice anything. You get your kids and a new toy. And they have wanted it back for it all year. In six months, it is a new addition to your garage sale inventory. Millionaires get tired of money. Kids get tired of toys. And sadly, Christians can get tired of doing good. Serving God faithfully can become a chore and a task for us. But as followers of Jesus, you and I have been called to radically reorient our lives in a way that redefines, if you will, for us, what is the true definer of joy? And what is the redefiner of our motivation to persevere? What is it that can keep us persevering despite obstacles, as we looked at the last couple of weeks in Nehemiah, despite just this, this uh, motivation of those good things, we just find ourselves kind of, kind of fading from our enthusiasm and perseverance. And Paul would say it this way in Philippians chapter 3. Read with you at the beginning of verse 1. 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And look, even, even Paul, hundreds of years later, he reaffirmed the Bible says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Look what Paul says. He says, I myself have reason for confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So try to be clear just a second. What Paul has just said is absolutely scandalous. He's saying that if my religious activity, my persevering in works, if it doesn't give me Jesus, then it's rubbish. Literally, the context of this word, extra. He says, if what I do does not give me Jesus, that kind of is rubbish. If all of my activity, for us, if our faithful community, committed, committed to our community, if our commitment to church gatherings, reading the word, serving well together, if those do not give me more of an intimate relationship with Jesus, Paul says they are rubbish if they do not get us the deeper knowledge of knowing Jesus. You know, the rhythms of Scripture that serve as kind of this undercurrent in our pursuit of Him is that absolute joy is found only in Jesus Christ. That is exactly what Jesus was referring to when He would say, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. So why do we share this? Why do I share this this morning as a backdrop for Nehemiah? I believe it's because this morning Nehemiah is going to teach us something about perseverance for what is primary. We have seen great perseverance from Nehemiah so far to work diligently for the rebuilding of the city wall. But as I shared with you last week, Nehemiah is motivated by something much deeper than just activity. Nehemiah is desperate for the presence of God. Now, anything that motivates us to persevere to follow Christ other than Christ himself is an unsustainable motivation. We will not persevere if our motivation is for anything other than Jesus. And if we're not careful, it can run the risk of personal idolatry, even if it's a healthy and good thing. Nehemiah, at this point, has not idolized the construction of the wall of supreme. He is not worshiping this wall. He is not worshiping the building of the wall. But he has instead been consumed 
with a desire to see the glory of God restored. As followers of Christ, we hunger and desire for God to bring about the completion of restoration of his kingdom. And this church is a sustainable motivation to persevere when we truly grasp his truth. Paul would write to the church in Galatia these words. He said, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So this morning, church, I want us to learn something about perseverance. Perseverance through spiritual battles. Perseverance through what you might see as insignificant service. Perseverance, once again, through opposition. And for us to see from the Almighty this morning how you and I can faithfully labor well to see the mission God has placed us before us fulfilled. There is a mission that God will complete. The gospel will be preached as a testimony to all people, as a testimony to all nations before the end comes. There is a mission that will be completed. So how do we persevere in that? So let me give you a little background for those who have just joined us very briefly. Our story Israel is just silly. They are constantly doing what Israel does. And God has removed them from the city of Jerusalem because they were disobedient. And he told them, if you're disobedient, I will scatter you. But if you return to me, then I will, I will gather you back together. From no matter where you're scattered, I will bring you back together as my people. But God promised them that he would restore them. He would restore their city. We saw in the first chapter that Nehemiah is moved with brokenness and he leads into prayer. In chapter 2, we see that prayer led into activity, that he was Pray to be the, with a blank check that God would use him to be the answer to his own prayers. We then look at the first wave of opposition that Nehemiah would face, this external opposition. And we looked at how anytime you're walking in a fallen and broken world, attempting to walk faithfully, you will experience opposition. And then last week, we learned that sometimes opposition may not only come from the outside, but it could actually be birthed internally. That among God's own people, discord can be sown, which can be relevant from following after him in mission. We also learned how we could be, this is against the nature of God. It's a poor representation of the kingdom, and it can distract us from the vision that is placed before us. And so this morning, I want us to look at Nehemiah chapter 6. And together we're going to see this calling to persevere. And I want us to see Nehemiah's example of perseverance by seeing five realities this morning. As we look to persevere, I want us to see five realities from chapter 6. As followers of Christ, we must recognize that we will not arrive. Okay? We will not arrive. We will not reach a day this side of glory when we have done all that there is to do. I want us to watch this play out in Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Samuel and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors of the gates, I want to pause here for just a second. This is an incredible statement of progress balanced with the reality of the work that remains to be done. Yet we all need what Nehemiah has. He saw the progress that was taking place, but yet saw the work that remained to be done. It was a time to rejoice, but not yet time to stop. And you and I are in the middle of this tension. You and I are in the middle of this kingdom that already is, but this kingdom that is not yet. You and I lie in this tension. Jesus ushered in the kingdom, but it is not yet. On the one hand, God's kingdom has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He resurrected, defeating sin and death, so that he might destroy evil. On the other hand, 
The perfect kingdom he points us to awaits his personal return to earth. We live in this tension where we have experienced the already but the not yet. May we rest in the finished work of Jesus, abiding and dwelling in that place, but yet may we turn our faces towards the reality of what will be when Jesus returns. So track me and check in verse 2. So Samuel and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafur in the plain of Homer. But they intended to do me harm. So reality number one. When we are persevering in the mission that God has placed before us, there's the reality of our enemies. There's the reality of our enemies. We see this in verses 1 through 2. Yes, we seek to persevere in the kingdom work that God has called us to. Are you aware of the reality that we have in them? Nehemiah knew what was at stake here. He knew the intentions of the enemies. He knew their opposition came because of their lack of kingdom pursuit. He says, they are my enemies. They are my enemies, and they intend to do me harm. I want to ask you, are you realistic about your enemies and their intentions? Are you aware of the reality that we are in a battle? We are engaged with the enemy. Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 12 to fight the good fight of the faith. Paul instructs the church in Ephesus in chapter 6, 12 of Ephesians to realize that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says we are engaged with the enemy. John 10, 10 tells us that what our enemy will be like. It says the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Brothers and sisters, we must be fully aware that we are engaged in open war. Nehemiah recognized that he had an enemy. And we have an enemy. His opposition may be tangibly in nature, but rest assured our struggles are spiritual in nature. One of my favorite scenes from War of the Rings is this dramatic scene in the two towers where Aragorn is addressing Peter, the king of Rohan, about the ensuing army that is approaching their stronghold. Don't be impressed with my long readings now. But Aragorn warns Theoden that there is an army of 10,000 people that would be there by nightfall, and they needed to take action to also see in this movie. But King Theoden, refusing to see the reality of the war, you remember what he says? He says, I will not risk open war to my people. And Aragorn will look at him and say to the king, Open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. You and I must see in our life, we do a good job of kind of wallpapering over the reality of the spiritual battle that we're in. We must see that as followers of Christ, God has not given us retirement papers. He is giving us marching orders. We must see the enemy we face. Now, oftentimes, the enemy attacks us on the front of the internal battle, as we will see in a moment. Attacks us at our weakest areas. Lulls us to sleep in the reality of the spiritual battle that is waging for our soul. A.W. Tozer once said, I believe that entertainment and amusements are the work of the enemy to keep dying in from knowing the dying 
to keep enemies of God from remembering that they're enemies. If our minds can be pulled into complacency, we will find ourselves neutral in the fight. Yet, church, we must see that whether we want to admit it or not, we are in open war. Uncharted times as a church in our generation. Never before have we seen the reality of evil in our world as we have seen this year in the martyrdom of our brothers and sisters globally. You and I are to persevere despite the attack of our enemies. We must recognize that there is a realistic enemy who is fighting for the real world of God. You do know that Satan is your enemy. You know that the enticements to sin are put there by those who intend to do Point you to a couple of scriptures about the battle we are engaged in. Ephesians 6, 10 through 11 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. Battle armor is needed for those in a fight. 1 Peter 5 8 says, Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. This is reality. Our enemy prowls like a lion looking for someone to devour. Nehemiah would recognize his enemy and he must be prepared as we engage in this spiritual battle to persevere in what God has called us to. If we're going to do that, we have to realize that we have an enemy. Verse 1. We'll see a second reality. Let's continue to read verses 3 and 4. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. You see, second reality, number two, is that there's the reality of your work. So we have an enemy, but then there's the reality of your work. Look what Nehemiah says here. He saw the work that he was engaged in as significant. Do you see your work for the kingdom as significant? Nehemiah understood that the work he was called to do was so significant that he had to continue undistracted. He did not take a break. Now I want you to go with me for a second and consider Nehemiah's situation. Compare what he is currently engaged in doing to what he had been doing back in Persia. He was a cupbearer to the king. It probably meant he had some say in who worked in the palace. He oversaw a lot of what came in contact with the king. The king had to trust him. He had to trust him because he would literally sip the wine to make sure that the king was not poisoned, someone was not attacking the king. He had to trust him. And yet Nehemiah left all of that to go to this broken down place on the edge of the empire and work with maybe one to, to two to three thousand Jews. But Nehemiah looked at the mess of his situation, at what many would say was insignificant and a waste of his time, and he would say, I'm doing a great work. What made the work Nehemiah was doing so significant? Not because the world would think that it was significant. The world would have called what he did back in Persia as a great work. And they would have thought he was a lunatic to leave that and go 800 miles to build a wall what made him see the reality of his work as significant was because it was operating on the kingdom agenda. 
So what would be seen as insignificant to those seemed like it like great significance to the king. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So as you consider the place that God currently has you in life, you see the greatness and the simplicity. If you're doing what God has called you to do, then the place He has you is significant. You may not be doing the work that may, that may be measured as great by the world's standards around you. And maybe you are doing the work that can be measured by the destruction of a, a wall. Right? You can see the effects of what you were doing. Something tangible. But God's name is, is, is at stake now just as it was at stake when Nehemiah was doing his work. And God has called him to be faithful in the place that he has you. Oh, dear, if you've been in one of our community groups, you've been walking through this study of an ordinary, an ordinary stuff series. And, you know, the ordinary series, he says, most gospel ministries involve ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. So ultimately, missions doesn't involve doing sensational acts supremely. It involves simple Ordinary acts done with the heart of God. God has called all of us to live out His glory by trusting Him and walking with Him and thanking Him for the place He currently has in you. This is important. We live in a culture, Christian culture, where we live from one spiritual height to the next. Where we live our Christian life always anticipating something big that we might but I say whether you are a barber, an engineer, a teacher, a stay-at-home mom, or if God has called you to lead in the ministry, the point is much less what we do, and it is much more how we do it and who we do it for. It is much less about what we do and much more about how we do it and who we do it for. Putting rocks around a small town was not what made Nehemiah's work. A dedication to God's name and God's promises and God's people is what makes Nehemiah's work. It is possible, it's possible to live the majority of life looking for the next significant task that the world will deem as admirable, to look for the next position that the world will seem to be noteworthy and be disobedient in the current place that God has you in the current work that He wants you to work in. I pray that you'll find great joy in seeing the second reality that there is great significance in the place that God has you in the work He has called you to do. It has kingdom significance. There's a third reality, and that is the reality, once again, of opposition. I told you a few weeks ago that Nehemiah was spending about two and a half chapters looking at the opposition. So I think it's something that we don't need to glance over, but something that we need to see the reality of. There's always going to be opposition to the work of God. Like we saw in the last chapter, opposition has once again arisen. And this time they have left their game. Look at verse 5. 
In the same way, Samuel, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So, so now come and let us take counsel here. And then I sent to them, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands would drop from their work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. You see a couple of different types of opposition coming here. First of all, we see that he has to persevere through overt opposition, a very open opposition. Look at the ways that they intended to derail the work. First of all, with rumors. So Samuel starts to send out these rumors to try and create an opposition against Nehemiah. Basically saying that he is committing treason against the king. He sent these letters to try and bully and intimidate and manipulate the situation so that Nehemiah would do what the enemies wanted and stop the work. And the rumors offer a believable alternative to the truth. That's what Nehemiah was doing. The rumors had an appearance of truth. The Jews had no intention of rebelling. And Nehemiah did not intend to become king, although he did have a messianic hope that a king was coming. So what we learned from this, in the face of rumors, as opposition came in the face of rumors, how did he react? First of all, he denied it. He denied it. He says, what you're saying is not true. He stood firm in the truth. He denied any false allegations. And then what he did, what did he do? He prayed for him. If there's anything that we see echoed throughout Nehemiah, it is opposition and prayer. And we see Nehemiah says, this is when rumors came his way, this is what he did. In your work for God, there may come opposition whose intention is to stop the work of the kingdom through falsehood. What do we do? Deny them? We abide in the truth. And we pray. We must see that rumors do not define us. We do not operate in their warped view of the world, but we deny the allegations. We pray. We see a second thing. We're trying to intimidate you. You see that in verse 9. Intimidation is another form of overt opposition. The people of God are sometimes tempted to tone down, soften, back away from, Maybe even speak softly about the truth, if not at all. That's not how he and I responded to this opposition. He persevered. But what did he persevere in? We see in verse 9, he persevered in the truth. The truth. Nehemiah stood firm by rejecting the imaginative and wicked spin that the enemies had put on reality. And he persisted in what God had called him to do. And we see that over opposition will come. The enemy will work in those ways. We have to hold to the truth of what God has spoken to us. We see a second type of opposition that happens here, verses 10 through 14, following. We see perseverance through covert opposition, the kind that's not me, the kind that's, that's not just blatant. Like he was, you know, Nehemiah had and sent his letter to be read and be read publicly. It would be read openly so that people would know what was taking place. And since it's not true, but then look what happens. In verse 10 through 14. He says, Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Tobiah, son of Mehedabal, 
And if he was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God in the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Look what Nehemiah says. He says, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go there. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Nehemiah and Samuel had hired me. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to talk. Verse 14, remember Tobiah and Samuel, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophets, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who want to make me afraid. So check this out. From what we see in this passage of words, we know that Shemaiah is some kind of prophet. Some kind of prophet. He is regarded in the community as being able to declare the will of God, which is why they sent him to Nehemiah. And he has told Nehemiah that his wife was threatened and he needed to enter the temple and take refuge. So how did Nehemiah know in verse 12 that this man was not of God? Because Nehemiah knew scripture. Nehemiah knew that only priests could enter the temple and live. Nehemiah recognized that he was not a priest and knew that if he tried to enter the temple, the Lord might break out against him. This prophet had told Nehemiah to do something that was forbidden by God's word. If someone tells you to do exactly what the Bible says not to do, you know that person does not speak for God. Sometimes opposition will come covertly through mistruth. There's someone leading you away from the truth of God's word. If you want to know the will of God, know this word. Evaluate the claims by what Scripture said. That's what Nehemiah did. Remember, Nehemiah is building a wall so that they can create a clean and holy place where God will dwell in his. So God's word is central to his faults and his actions in opposition. He opposes those who oppose him by being strong and firm in knowing God. There is a reality of opposition. There's a fourth reality. And this is the reality of God's power at work. Look at verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. They perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to him. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Herod, and his son Jehovah, uh, and had taken the daughter of Mishalim, the son of Berechiah, and his wife. Also, that also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and recorded my words to him. Tobiah sent letters. Many of the phrases, the bias continues. But we see that there is a reality that the people recognize God at work. As we are persevering in the work that God has called us to, my prayer is that God will be faithful to do a work that is beyond our confidence. A work that just as in Nehemiah, the outside, outside world knows that this can only be accomplished in God. 
We want to be a people who do things that can only be done because God is helping. We don't want to do things that can be explained by human effort. We don't want the world to look at us and say that anybody with financial needs and creative marketing and cultural understanding can pull off. We want people to look at our church and our gospel efforts and be saying only God can bring people together like this. Only God can allow them to love the way that they love. Only God can allow them to see things happening that are happening. Only God can do that. We want people to be shocked at how people from such diverse backgrounds and interests can serve together for the greater good. We want them to see that only God can do this work. Because you see, the work we strive for can only be accomplished by God. Only God can bring about true conversion. Only God can convince people that the Bible is true. Only God can bring the spiritually dead back to life. Only God can pay the price for our sins. We cannot do that on our own. Do you realize the magnitude of the work that God has called us to? We cannot accomplish on our own. It is a work that can only be defined by the power of God and work among His people. And I want us to press into that. I don't want us to have it all figured out. I don't want us to have all the techniques down to a formula. I want us to always be on the edge of God doing a work beyond what you and I can possibly control and accomplish on our own. If we come in and we, we have a set way in which we want to do something in a method to accomplish a set outcome, and that is all we get, then we have sold short God. We need a bigger dream. If our vision can be attainable apart from the power of the Holy Spirit at work, we need a new vision. So I pray as the body of Christ that we can see that only God can do what He can accomplish. And the reality of the work is that we want God, people to be able to look and see the reality of God's power and work among His people. So my prayer is that we will see that as His people will press into that. God, we don't have it figured out. We bring nothing to accomplish this task. We are empty shells of people that have been broken, but then you have brought us together to this beautiful mosaic where you are painting the picture of your, your bride that you have brought from brokenness back into restoration and completeness. And we want that to be defined by the power of God. And there's a final reality. We see this in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we have seen how the law has been And they had set the doors up and put the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites, they all had been appointed. And he appoints leadership. We see that the, it says in verse 4 of chapter 7, the city was wide and large, yet the people within it were still few and no houses and even bigger than You see that there is a reality of God's purpose. There was still work to be done. The completing of the wall was not easy. There was still work to be done. So we get to chapter 7, and we, if you read through that whole chapter, you will see a list of about 50,000 plus people who have been assembled back together in the city. The purpose for which Nehemiah had set out to complete a task was partially fulfilled this morning. The city was restored physically, and we will see next week the spiritual restoration that was still ahead. There was still a spiritual work to take place. Nehemiah had not arrived. And there is great importance found in this description of the residence of the king. 
not something this planet's going to do. You think about the, of the heritage there. Nehemiah had to establish who the Jews were so that he could establish who could live in Jerusalem. Remember, this was a purified people for God's dwelling. And this genealogy was the first step to validate the identity of the true people of God that Jerusalem would be purified. In church, God's objective is continuing to be the same. I want you to listen to this scripture in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you want to know what it means to see God's purpose fulfilled by purifying people for his possession, this morning you can recognize that God is created. That and yet we have sinned. For that, we deserve to pay the penalty for sin, which is separation from God forever. But the good news is that because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we can place our trust in Christ for salvation. And the good news is that we are in the tension between the kingdom that is and the kingdom that is not yet. Jesus came and accomplished that for us so that we can become kingdom citizens. And there's a truth that Jesus will return again. That's good news. Because when he returns again, we can stand before the Father. And he chooses to look at the righteousness of his Son in place of our righteousness. Instead of looking at the great debt that our sin incurred, he looks at the perfect thing that is Son And so as you and I are in that tension, may we see that we have purpose. May we see that we have a reason for doing what we do. May we see great significance in the work of our hands, even though it may seem very insignificant. May we recognize there is a real enemy. The good news is, is the enemy has been defeated. As we sang about the name of Jesus earlier, I thought of the truth that as I was preparing to preach about having an enemy.
and we stand before the Father perfectly purified from the as he completes the deed and ushers the end. That's good for